The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and today I'm joined by Caterina Principi to discuss Portuguese social democracy, the financial crisis and Eurozone austerity. You can listen to the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes and Acast and as always you can follow on Facebook and Twitter at Poll Theory Other. If you like the podcast, please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Caterina Principi is a social movement activist from Portugal. She's a member of the Bloco de Esquerda, the Portuguese left bloc, and a contributing editor at Jacobin. She's also the co-editor of the book Europe in Revolt, Mapping the New European Left. So on the UK left, Portugal is often seen as this exception to Eurozone austerity. There's this conventional story that um, the Socialist Party came to power in 25 with the support of the Communist Green Alliance and the, and the Bloco de Esquerda. Uh, and that the government then eased up on austerity and steered Portugal to sustainable growth and, and got control of the deficit. And uh, just this week in The Guardian, there was an article by Joseph Stiglitz on the Eurozone, uh -huh. and he was lauding the Portuguese government very much along these lines. But in a, in a recent article in, in Jacobin, you argued that the Portuguese government should not be characterised as, as an anti-austerity government. Um, what, what do you mean by that? Um, yes, actually, I, I have that article from Stiglitz to read, and I haven't, haven't read it, but uh, it's on my list. Um, so, um, I mean, how, how do we traditionally characterize austerity? Um, it's a set of, um, political and economical rules that normally tend to higher taxes and lower, um, state expenditure, uh, and liberalizing labor laws. I mean, it's in the... And, and so austerity because the state is saving and at the same time trying to get more money from taxpayers. Um, of course, this is embedded in, a, in an ideological form of um, uh, consumption uh, relating to people, what they can and can't do, the, the how they have to live. So this idea I mean, austerity is not a new thing. It's maybe changing names in a, in a way. I mean, maybe some years ago in Britain, uh, we could just have called it the Tina narrative. Um, and so if we look at this um, form of uh, analyzing what austerity is, uh, this government has changed the narrative. Absolutely. Uh, so... The narrative of this government, the public narrative, is the time of sacrifices is over, so people can go back to consuming. And of course, if people are not afraid of consuming, even if they get more or less the same money, uh, 
sometimes less uh, the same and then they then they did during the four years of the troika intervention they will feel more um at ease spending it um because you know they don't have to save it's not a hard time things are blossoming and so on and of course that reboosts internal consumption which in turn reboosts the economy on the other hand uh, it is also fair to say that there has been a small decrease on taxes so um if we look at the years of the memorandum there was an overall 35 percent tax hike the taxes right now they didn't actually so there was it was not the percentage that lowered but the tax hike uh, happened in portugal by uh, there were there were eight tax bans and they the former government reduced it to five that meant that uh, it was much less distributed so people who before were in a lower tax band actually went to a higher tax band so they were paying much more taxes what this government did was not even to go back to the tax band system we had before but to create two intermediate tax bands so there is a small part of the middle class that almost has been disappearing in the last years that is actually paying a little bit um, less taxes so this on the two questions of how we define austerity if then we take in consideration the liberalization of the labor market and uh, state expenditure then it's very clear that this government is not an anti-austerity government uh, public investment um, has been the lowest um, has been the lowest since uh, the Portuguese uh, democracy since Portuguese democracy started. So there has never been so few money spent on both uh, investment in creating jobs and in health, education, social security, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's less than it was with the former right-wing government during the Troika. And concerning the labor laws, although um, there has been a very big narrative of this government of ending precarity or starting a way to end precarity, the truth is that absolutely no law that was approved during the Troika years, meaning uh, how easy it is to fire someone, um, the, 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 the overwhelming numbers of temporary work, uh, something that in Portugal is a, is a type of illegal form of contracting that we call the green receipt, that is supposed used by independent workers, but actually massively used by the state uh, to substitute permanent functions by temporary workers. Um, uh, nothing has this as this has changed so actually although they now although they now approved with the right wing so there was just two weeks ago a meeting of the social what we call in Portugal social consultation this is the government together with uh, the trade union confederations and the confederation of the bosses and every time there is any shift in the labor law it has to be discussed there and since this government started there was not once when the government voted with 
the trade unions. They always vote with the bosses, meaning that all the uh, all the proposals that the trade unions and the left within the government have been making in the last years um, to um, to uh, change what has been uh, what was applied very eagerly by the right wing government during the Troika. Nothing has changed. Actually, a couple of things are getting worse. So if we t so, I mean, it's fair to say that in the central questions of austerity, of what defines, of how we define austerity, they were mainly left untouched. Um, plus, um, at the same time, uh, uh, the Portuguese debt is bigger in terms of raw numbers. It's, it's bigger today than it was when we asked for a bailout. Uh, it's not just as big in percentage to the GDP because the GDP grew slightly um, in the last uh, years. Um, so, I mean, so we're talking really about about a, a, an alleviation of austerity, austerity implemented in a less brutal way than than the abandonment of austerity. Yeah, we 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 in a way we call it austerity life and hard austerity and. Mm. Hard austerity was what we experienced during the Troika, which was a very fast-paced process. And now, what we can see is a little bit of a little bit of recovery in um, in the capacity of uh, consumption. A little bit of recovery. There was a, a little a little raise in the minimum wage. A part of the pensions, very small part, were unfrozen. So there's some little things. But on the central questions that structure uh, uh, a political economy of a government, it is impossible to say that this is an anti-austerity government. You've mentioned the the memorandum and and the troika. I, I wonder if you could explain something of of, uh, of the background to the situation we're we're now in. So so what were the effects of the financial crisis on Portugal, and um, what was Portugal's experience under the um, the troika? Um, I I I think I, it's it's easier. I mean, Portugal was was um, because of the particular situation that I normally argue that Portugal was um, was built up to be a successful example. Portugal is not was not ever as talked as in Greece. Also, because the situation never became as extreme. But um, if we remember in 2010 and 2011, when Greece asked for the first bailout, uh, it's, it's more or less the same. So we can see is a, what, what we saw very clearly was a, a big, big um, uh, rise in unemployment. Uh, the levels of uh, impoverishment, the number of people that were actually living beyond the poverty line skyrocketed. Um, we saw the beginning of the failure of a, you know, of a social state that has been defunded for years. And and let's keep in mind, and this is also something that sometimes we <laughs> need to remind ourselves in this conversation, that has been defunded mainly by governments of the Socialist Party. Uh, as, as it's common all around Europe, uh, if we look at big changes in the structure of social security or the social state 
in Germany, for example, it wasn't the doings of the, the CDU, but of the SPD, or, or in France, or in Spain. So Portugal is the same case. So all the big um, processes of liberalization, both of the labor market and of defunding the social state, have been introduced, the big ones, except with the exception for the Troika years, the years of exception, um, as we call them, they have been introduced by the Socialist Party. So although we have a defunded uh, so, social state, it's still, uh, there's still a lot of good structures in place, but of course they, they stopped working. So, um, you know, what happened in Greece, like hospitals were starting to lack uh, necessary medicine to give to chronic patients uh, and things like that. We also had a very interesting, I mean, interesting in commas, we had the big migration wave uh, of Portuguese history during the Troika years. There had been a very big migration wave before, in, during the 60s, um, during the dictatorship. And uh, this one was uh, even bigger. So it's estimated that around 600,000 people left the country in one and a half years. I mean, and let's keep in mind that Portugal is a country of 10 million. Mm. Um, so, I mean, the, the very clear effects are, you know, uh, lowering the wages, uh, tax hikes, impoverishment, unemployment, uh, precarity, migration, and the social state defunded. And I think this is uh, how we could characterize this period. So in your article, you contrast the treatment of Portugal and Greece under the Troika. And one of the things you point out is that effectively Portugal was allowed to use a form of quantitative easing by allowing the Bank of Portugal to purchase Portuguese debt bonds, whereas Greece was denied the opportunity to do something similar. Can you explain what the effect of that relative leniency from the Troika in, in Portugal's case was? And, and why, how do you explain this contrasting treatment? Why was Greece treated so much more severely than Portugal? Although clearly, you know, as you say, it's not as if Portugal was well treated. Um, so just also to make a remark, before this uh, specific program was created of quantitative easing to Portugal, I don't know if they changed it in the documents uh, because it would be a little ridiculous, but it's possible they haven't. It's actually written, it's forbidden for, uh, uh, for the ECB to, or for the Bank of Portugal, so for the Portuguese section of the ECB to buy directly Portuguese bonds, or for any uh, national section of the ECB, so it's forbidden for the Bank of Greece to buy Greek bonds, or for German, for the German Central Bank to buy German bonds. Um, the, the, the importance of this is that when you're when economically is that when you are in a situation where um, you have a 130% uh, debt, the public debt compared to your GDP, and when a big chunk of the money that you are spending is to pay this debt, if the government can buy Portuguese debt bonds, it means that on, on buying the bonds themselves, so paying uh, the debt, the money 
uh, re-enters the economy. And so it's not something that is just going out that we're paying, that is uh, the, it's the Deutsche Bank buying things or some other banks from whatever. And then there is no money coming back to the Portuguese economy, but allowing this, it has allowed for, uh, for, for the money to circulate within the Portuguese economy. And so this is why this is an important thing because it actually allowed um, for the lowering of interest rates and to reboost uh, a little bit the internal um, internal uh, eternal economic cycle. At the same time, and this is my argument, I think it's the second part of your question, is why do I think that this was allowed to Portugal not to Greece? So what, 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 how did we come to this situation? Um, I think there's a, um, I think this is more than um, purely economical, it's, it's political. Uh, it's, a, it's a political question. Um, Greece, Greece had some um, particularities that Portugal didn't upon the moment of the bailout. On the one hand, it was um, uh, the, social, the Socialist Party of Greece, PASOK, that was in power, uh, and therefore they were the ones who were responsible for the implementation of the bailout programs. That meant uh, that there was an, an empty space for the left, to the left of PASOK, so the anti-austerity, anti-bailout left to grow. Um, that together with uh, extraordinary examples and moment of the organization of the social movements in Greece through not only the Syntagma Square mo moment, but how this turned into everyday organized resistance with the solidarity networks and how also then there, there was the capacity of coming to a sort of communication and a working together between the party and the social movement, which I think is a very interesting example that we still need to learn a lot from. Um, there was this uh, particular situation where there was the possibility for an anti-austerity left to bloom. On the other hand, at the same time that this was happening, the country was completely devastated and we could see news on TV, on the newspapers, online, every day, about how chaotic and destroyed Greece was. Um, so, I think the the European elites, NATO in particular, but the European elites in general, saw that um, they could not apply austerity at the at the pace that they did without um having um a very big social political convulsion um and at the same time creating the space for an a strong anti-austerity mo mo movement to bloom and i think this was what happened in greece and once Syriza got into power um 
they understood that they needed to discipline this this uh, experience in particular, making it impossible at all levels for them to sustain an anti-austerity movement. I don't, I don't want to discuss Syriza particularly what they did wrong and how they capitulated later, but just this moment, I mean, they understood they needed to be disciplined because uh, Merkel, even for her own internal politics in Germany, there was the need to make the case that austerity must um, work and it's needed. If they would have allowed uh, either the so social convulsion endlessly to continue until, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know, a big, more than, more riots, more, you know, all of this, and maybe mm -hmm. this could be the, the spark for some other things across Europe. And if they would have allowed an anti-austerity party to actually uh, gain way with for an anti-austerity program, this could have been replicated very easily in different countries around Europe, because the problem of the debt is not just a Greek or a Portuguese problem. It's a big Italian problem, which Italy has probably the biggest debt in the Eurozone. Uh, it's a Spanish problem. It's an Irish pro uh, problem. And so in, in, well, with Italy as an exception, in all these countries, there were left-wing forces at the time that were um, gaining some traction from the Syriza example. Uh, if you look at the time when Syriza was elected, uh, uh, was won office for the first time, there are opinion polls in Spain at the same time that put Podemos in the first place if there, were be a, if there would have been elections. So um, Portugal needed that there was the need for another example of how to deal with austerity. And Portugal was in the perfect situation. First of all, it was the right wing that applied. So the big opposition party to austerity, to austerity was not the left, but the socialist party. So it would be possible to have a counterposition to harsh austerity with light austerity, so with a party that abides to European rules, uh, that doesn't want to cut, uh, cut the, the, the ties with the European Union or the Euro, who obeys to the budgetary treaty uh, rules and so all of this, or the fiscal compact. Um, and, and because of this, I, I, I truly think that um, this is the reason why Portugal was given, since the right-wing government, so much um, more uh, benefits compared to Greece, because Portugal was to, to be set up as the example, especially when things in Greece became so chaotic and, and difficult to manage from the European, from the side of the European elite, that if we would have an example in Portugal that, you know, a country that has almost the same years of European integration, a weak state as Greece does, um, a, a very peripheral place in the economic dynamics of the EU. Uh, so very similar, let's say, states within Europe. If one could show how austerity worked, okay, you implemented the memorandum, you had sacrifices, maybe you went a little bit too far here and there, Merkel even says that now, maybe we could have been a bit softer, but overall, overall, it's a successful example. Look, now the the, the country is booming, it's full of tourism, of tourists, 
the deficit levels are lower than ever. Um, we don't mention the debt, and we <laughs> we just don't mention debt uh, at all, but uh, or investment. But you see, um, uh, um, labor is uh, you know there's a, employment is is rising again and so on. So, and I think this is the thing. Portugal is is since the beginning to be set as the example how austerity can work and is worth it. Mm. Um, and Greece is not that example at all for the the, the clear conditions of, of, of the, or the clear conditions and the clear um, experience of what happened during that time. Um, no one believes today if we just had Greece to look at that austerity is a good thing and that after it, everything blossoms again. But Portugal is perfect for this. Um, and by that, you manage to keep um, an economical and political status quo within the European Union that also allows Merkel for an internal uh, narrative of how she was right and how this was worth it and on earth. That, uh, that you couldn't have had if you just had Greece to show, or if Portugal would have become a second Greece, then you wouldn't have any concrete example to say, okay, this is good, it worked, we did it well. It's interesting to hear you say that this needs to be explained in, in political terms, because of course the, um, the Troika rationalizes everything it does, both to itself and, and externally, as in terms of financial necessity. But, you know, as you're saying here, Effectively, they took a very political decision to shore up the, the right in Europe and, and smash the, the left. Yes. I suppose one other thing that occurred to me was that, um, I suppose in the Greek case, there's also the question of whether um, people like Wolfgang Schauble, for instance, I mean, it seems like he was at best kind of uh, ambivalent about the prospect of Greece actually leaving the Eurozone. So I, I sort of wonder if... In the case of Greece, there was also a degree of a sense of, well, we can really do real brinkmanship here. We can really push them to the wall because at the end of the day, if they exit the Eurozone, we'll still economically smash them. And we don't really care about losing Greece as well. I wonder if that if that was something to do with it. I, I don't know if you have if you have an opinion. Yeah, on that. I think I think you're right. I think there was um, I remember I, I was in, in, in Greece for altogether three, four months in 2015. And I remember having this conversation with different people <clears throat> who said, uh, especially people who uh, were in the mainstream of, of on the you know on the mainstream of political line of citizen, let's say like these are people who are still now supporting the government saying no but this will never happen so we can blackmail them and we can push them against the wall uh, Greece mm. push it, because they will never let us go and I said well, it's not true I mean if if you look at um, uh, so Germany was some years ago, I don't know if they were last year, but three years ago, the world, um, the biggest world exporter in terms of a population, of course. And it's, you know, the, the export markets that that's that's what countries like Portugal or, or Greece in the dynamic of the Eurozone and of the European Union were supposed to be export markets. Uh, it's not really true that um, um, Germany, in particular, needs Greece uh, and needs Greece within the Eurozone uh, because they need a place to export their products. The, the country that Germany exports more to is China. Um, 
and 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 therefore the idea that um losing greece would be a big economic uh, economical bump uh for the eurozone in 2015 or 2016 i i don't think that's totally right i mean for sure there would have been some tremblings <laughs> Uh, mm -hmm. For a while, but 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 not as a generalized thing that if if the eurozone would lose Greece, it would crumble. That's 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 not true um, at all. And I think Schäuble was uh, someone who was always very clear on this, on the thing that yeah, okay. I mean, if we have to lose Greece, if they're playing it hard, then we will just dump you, and it will be the it will from their perspective and the situation that they were in which is not my perspective, but I mean, to be expelled from the Eurozone is something different. I just want to make this parenthesis. It's something very different different than deciding to leave. I mean, it's, mm. they're very different uh, processes. But I mean, they would just smash them and they would be probably in a worse economic situation that they, than they were. But I think this question was, again, political, because you can imagine what would have been if Germany would have dropped Greece in 2015 uh, or 2016 with uh, new elections in the, for the Portuguese parliament, elections in Spain, um, with Italy in big convulsions, even in France with, uh, with uh, uh, you know, with a, with a, with a roller coaster going very down for the France, uh, so for the French Socialist Party. Can you imagine what that type of um, action could have created as a reaction politically? And I think this is the same reading. I think it was above all um, a political maneuvering. So if Germany could, and that's what they did, and they did it very well, if they could uh, at the same time um, co-opt the anti-austerity left and uh, uh, calm down all the the critical voices around Europe and at the same time maintaining them in the Eurozone by following their rules, I mean, even worse than the right wing did. I mean, it's the winner takes it all situation. But for that, that they needed that. And I think they played this very well. They needed a, a, to contain a left wing party not to let it uh, be the spark that sets other movements uh, on fire around other places. And um, uh, at the same time, and this is where I think Portugal is an important player, at the same time setting Portugal as the example of the successful austerity, the good student, if you play by our rules and if you don't create too much disturbance, blah, blah, everything will be fine for you. So in 2015, the... the um... The minority socialist government is is formed. I, I wonder if you could just explain who the players in in that are. Uh, you know, if you could um, say something about the um, about the socialist party and also the the, the bloco and and uh, the, the communists and so on. Also, if you could say something about the about the class composition of uh, the bases of, of those parties. Okay. Um, so, in the supporting the the minority government of the socialist party, uh, there's the socialist party which is of course the, the party of the of the socialist international um so the ten, the former now liberalized traditional social democracy their their class composition 
is basically as all uh, the ones that still exist around Europe is I mean it's um, it's uh, it's a lot of uh, traditionally a lot of trade unionists um, working class people also um, uh, some of the more I don't exactly know the specific name for this in English but the more you know, teachers and uh, doctors and so the and lawyers and so on. But uh, so the more liberal, the more left-wing, progressive, also in terms of uh, of the idea of solidarity within uh, economically, but also politically. So people who stand for um, <clears throat> a lot of the social rights. Uh, like abortion and uh, LGBT rights and so on, um, and then we have Bloco, which is the party of the of the radical left. It's a it's a, the party that I'm a member of. Um, Bloco was formed in '99. Is uh, probably the first example of what we call today parties of a new type or broad left parties. It, it was a party composed by three small, very small parties. Uh, that uh, remained, some were formed after the Portuguese Revolution. So it's the, um, the Portuguese section of the Fourth International, a former Maoist uh, party, and um, and a, a more Euro-communist-oriented group, which was a break, which was formed through a break with the Communist Party, I think in the beginning of the 90s. I might be exactly wrong in the dates, but in the beginning of the 90s. And so these three parties together with a lot of people that, that didn't have um, a political instrument where to be organized um, came together uh, for different reasons. And I mean, the story of Locus will still have to be written in ways uh, but I think there are different things that prompted the coming together of these groupings together with a lot of other people uh, of the left uh, in the country. Uh, one thing is clearly the understanding that um, if there, if any of this group, I mean, if, there, if the left wanted to have any sort of institutional representation and some electoral capacity, um, they couldn't be groupuscles forever. So they needed a broader um, party. Uh, at the same time, there are some experiences uh, at the time. So if we're talking about 99, we should remember it's the time of the outer globalization movement that also was in Portugal. In Portugal, there was a big social movement uh, at the time because of the war between Indonesia and Timor. Um, uh, and in 98, um, the left lost the referendum for uh, abortion rights. So a lot of the, you know, a, a social movement coming, the influence politically in the atmosphere of the outer globalization move, uh, movement, together with the lost referendum and the clear uh, understanding that in order to have some sort of institutional presence, you needed to regroup re the left. This was what drove the, um, all these things, what, what drove the formation of, of the party. Um, and Bloco, in terms of social composition, is 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 a party that targets a lot of um, uh, young people, um, a lot of uh, of the you know 
low middle class uh, people, although these terms in Portugal it's a bit hard to use. Um, so of course, uh, people who work for public web, public work for the state, so uh, public administration, uh, again, teachers, doctor, doctors, nurses, um, a lot of people, uh, a lot of people connected to the culture, cultural areas. Um, so it, it's not, of course, in some parts of the country and with the growth of the party, of course, it, we want a lot of working class, uh, traditional working class people, but um, it, it, I, I, I can't say uh, that this is the, the big base of support of local. At the same time, or on the contrary, the Communist Party, which is the oldest party in Portugal, because they, they lived through uh, the dictatorship in clandestinity for a big, a big part of it. Um, of course, they have a very, very solid um, working class base in, um, in poor neighborhoods and small villages, particularly in the south of the country for historical political reasons of the revolutionary process, uh, where they still win uh, town halls and all of this. Um, so in terms of uh, class composition, uh, clearly the, 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 the Communist Party is the party that is, that is um, ingrained in the what remains of the industrial working class uh, that uh, controls the big trade unions and all of this. Mm. So in terms of composition, I think that's, that's it. Uh, the Greens in Portugal are, are, are not the Greens for most of the Western world. Uh, the Greens are a very a small party. They never run by themselves in elections. And they were actually created by the CP um, to have a party which can defend some more environmental questions and at the same time some of the social questions. For example, we just had a big public debate in Portuguese society uh, two weeks ago um, about, oh, how do you say this in English? I actually don't know, euthanasia, euthanasia you know, assisted death. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, and it's very interesting, the Communist Party voted against and the Greens voted in favor. Mm. And this has been a, but yeah, so, but they work as a, they always run in coalition. So they are very uh, close group. So it's not, our Greens are not the, from the political family of the European Greens. It's a different uh, history. So the Bloco are helping to, to shore up the, the socialist government in, in Portugal. I mean, I suppose in some respects, that's quite an understandable thing to do, that it makes it possible to ameliorate austerity somewhat. And I suppose in a situation where you initially had very uh, extreme austerity, you know, it's, it's sort of hard to begrudge the Bloco from doing that. But, but do, you, do you think this long term is quite dangerous for the, for the Bloco and for the left more generally? And, and do you think there was an alternative to, to supporting the socialist government? Um, so this is something that we, we haven't talked about that I think it's uh, also an, a very important uh, reason to understand how we can uh, frame a critical um, uh, understanding or position to, to this uh, government. Uh, it's the, the, the process of uh, stopping a dying social democracy. 
and because you know it's the, what we have been what we now call what since Greece uh, the process of pazakification, so the disappearance of the traditional social democracy. Um, it was happening in Portugal as well, not as fast-paced as in, in Greece, but nowhere else it was as fast-paced as in, in, in Greece. Although France is, again, now a question, but, um, but so we had a socialist party that was between a rock and a hard wall. They would either, after the elections 2015, they would either decide to join a government of the right as a junior partner, because the right wing won the elections, um, although they didn't get absolute majority. Um, they would either join a right wing government as a junior partner or they would negotiate with the left. And uh, I, I have to be honest, I, I mean, I don't think any of us was expecting the Socialist Party to or yeah, to, to decide to negotiate with the left. Um, uh, but because we weren't exactly because we weren't expecting this, during the electoral process, um, um, the, the electoral campaign, uh, our spokesperson said uh, in the end of a TV debate to the spokesperson of the Socialist Party, to the uh, general secretary, she, she told him, um, uh, we are willing to negotiate an agreement with you based on a couple of questions to reverse austerity and so on. So when they actually, the Socialist Party actually said, okay, uh, so the, the right wing was uh, not didn't wasn't able to form a government. They didn't have parliamentary support for it. So it was time for the second most voted party, which was the Socialist Party, to try to form a government. They decided, okay, we will negotiate with the left since they supposedly were open to it. Um, and I think this was um, uh, we got trapped, uh, I believe, in our own electoral tactics. Uh, because we weren't expecting it. We weren't expecting Bloco to do as well as, as it did. Um, and so at the time, it would have been ridiculous to back off and to say, no, you know, we were just joking. This was just electoral tactics. We, we couldn't do that. But I think we misread the necessity of the Socialist Party to negotiate to the left. Um, they They understood... And I think because there is a there is a, a tension within the Socialist Party, and this tension, which is a very interesting ideological debate, to be honest, to follow, um, uh, between two wings of the party, uh, one that wants to, which is minoritary in many ways, but who want, a wing that wants to turn the Socialist Party into a proper social democratic party, and one who wants to keep their uh, way, the third way Blairite style type of politics. And so uh, this tensions within the Socialist Party, together with um, the, the, the historical moment of the understanding that if they wouldn't negotiate with the left, probably their uh, faith was to disappear as Pazok did, or, uh, you know, the SPD did, in the, didn't disappear, but they, they they never managed to win any election, or uh, to uh, to to they would have the same destiny as the the Socialist Party in France and so on. I think they would have been, and because they had the European, and this is another thing. Of course, always with uh, you know, of course, this was always a negotiation. But because the European elites uh, were willing to give Portugal this space of maneuvering, 
on the one hand to actually frame it finally as the successful example and on the other hand because sometimes when we talk about the european level we think about it as a homogenous group and it's not it's a group that is composed by different political families and that has contradiction and clashes and confrontations within themselves so i think the 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 the, the political family of the socialist party they wanted uh, portugal to be set as another example possibly of a possible rebuild of uh, social democracies although I, i don't think that can be this can last forever but uh, but anyway i don't think they were willing to lose yet another uh, party at the national level um and so i, I think the left um didn't read properly this situation and we could have forced a much um, more a much better agreement uh, so the agreement we have is is very small it it, it doesn't solve uh, the important question so i think we should have had the courage to uh, force the socialist party given that we were in that situation give force the socialist party to accept a much more left-wing uh, progressive anti-austerity agreement um the fact that uh traditionally the left bloc and the communist party never do anything together which is bad but it's how uh, how it has been since uh, the bloc was formed um also um created the situation that the socialist party negotiated with the three parties so with us with lawful with the communist party and with the green separately hmm. so at so the socialist party had all the information about the agreements that it was doing but the the left never united to propose a common agreement so the socialist party had all the hands you know they they had all the information in their hands um and okay but let's even say that we accepted the agreement just as it is then the problem is um what type of political priority we give to this type of political work so we are not part of the government so we don't hold any sort of office or power we're just on parliament but because the agreement is a broad text all the measures all the laws everything is has to be dealt with daily and uh local group in the last elections uh, so our parliamentary group uh, is uh, the biggest ever so there's a, a lot of um, bureaucratic uh, stuff to deal with every day but the problem with the with this is that in the end we didn't use this moment uh, to push and to make to give strength and voice and platform and audience to the things that we said from the beginning were absolutely necessary to overthrow austerity these things are um uh, getting out of the fiscal compact uh renegotiating and cutting off debt um uh, uh, turning <clears throat> uh, um, overthrowing all the troika labor laws um uh, uh having national control of the banking system if not of all of it at least of all the bailed out banks which are a big chunk of the portuguese banking system at the moment 
So all the, the, the things that we said uh, for years that were absolutely vital for an anti-austerity party, they got lost in the daily doings of this process. And also because we were, I, I, I think, we were afraid to push too far, to be seen as the responsible of, of as the one, because this is also the question for parties who find themselves in these situations. Um, you have, you start to play politics by the responsible way. And the responsible way is not seen as what I see as responsible, which is to keep uh, a strong programmatic uh, political program and uh, activity around it, but responsible in the way that the bourgeois democracy sees you as responsible. Meaning, okay, yes, I give you this here, you give me this there, we can't create too much tension, we can't uh, push this too far, because imagine that that that, that will create a political situation that uh, will lead to new elections. And in the end, I mean, you can make an agreement given the circumstances. Uh, it's not a question of uh, breaking a principle of, or, or of capitulation. Given the, 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 the situation, you can make an agreement, but you have to be sure that there are things that cannot happen. And there are things that you need to push forward even at the stake of breaking with the agreement if that's needed. And breaking with the agreement, with this type of agreement, will probably mean some type of electoral loss, at least in the short term. Because it's difficult, because people don't understand, because no, 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 because you create it, because maybe the right wing came back, the right wing, the center right, when I talk about right wing, is the center right. Because the center right, the center right comes back into power, because then you're the responsible. So, uh, because we got trapped in this blame game, who is to blame for the good things that happened? Who is to blame for the things that didn't happen? And our narrative, the narrative of Bloco, is to try to create this idea that we are to blame for the good things that happened. But we cannot be blamed for the good things that didn't happen. And that's, of course, an impossible narrative. No one understands it. And it doesn't make sense. Because the things that didn't happen meant that we had to agree that they didn't happen. And so uh, this is the problem is that this this situation, it would it was a it's a very dangerous one. Um, and I don't think we were at all prepared for it. And I do think that we are less and less prepared for it. So uh, we will have elections next year. And there's an absolute big question mark about uh, what will happen and what even what Bloc will do. Am I right in thinking that um, the Socialist Party are, are doing quite well in the polls and that they might actually be able to form a majority administration in the next elections? Yeah, um, they um, <laughs> they won. <laughs> uh, they won, I mean, all of this. They, they played it really well. Um, yes, they, they are polling near absolute majority right now um but it, this is also an interesting thing um the secretary they had a, their congress a month ago and um their secretary general we our prime minister is, is a very uh, smart person and the, the the narrative of the leadership of the socialist party now says even if we have an absolute majority 
what this political situation has taught us is that it's always better when we have partners to govern with. Hmm. And so this narrative is basically saying, even if we have absolute majority, I think, I, I might be wrong, but given what they have been saying, that they will even try to say, okay, you should be part of this government, even if they have absolute majority. Because this was this this experience has been so successful for them uh, in at the same time regaining track and co-opting the left that um, especially if they have absolute majority, it would be the perfect situation for them if any of the parties would decide to join them or support them. And this is what they're saying. Yes, we can have absolute majority, but this situation has proven so good and fruitful for the country and a shift in the political uh, panorama of, uh, of Portuguese politics since the, the beginning of democracy. And this shows that the left can work together and therefore it's always better to govern with a party and we can uh, we can include uh, differences. All of this, which is a very, uh, you know, interesting um, form of putting it, but but um, but so it's it's not. It, I mean, it's it's not clear for me that um, I, I can't say that. Okay, if the socialist party has absolute majority, this is over. I can't. I can't even mm. say that right now. I, I don't know if that's that will be the case. In the long term, I mean, how how sustainable do you think this this sort of situation is for the Socialist Party to be presiding over this, as you say, austerity light indefinitely? Because, I mean, I wonder if, if perhaps there might be a feeling amongst uh, ordinary Portuguese people that they there might be a sense of, you know, oh, at some point the good times will come back. But, you know, there's, there's very little about... Uh, the eurozone or even the global economy that would make one think that the good times are, are going to come back and and do you think the socialist party at some point that their support will inevitably erode because of that um i think that uh the good times will not last forever and i don't think the socialist party will keep on being the good austerity light uh social liberal party hmm. uh, and you can start to see that because now we are at the end, it's the last year of um, of this uh, government, of this mandate. And you can see the shifts already. Uh, so voting, social consultation with the bosses, uh, all the promises they made to the teachers concerning their um, career paths uh, not happening. Um, uh, the unfreezing of uh, part of the pensions not happening. <laughs> um, there, there's hospitals in Portugal that are stopping because they can't work anymore for lack of uh, people and conditions. Um, no more money for for, for public health. Um, so you can see uh, already the shift. Um, but you, you, we 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 didn't actually talk about this but you're, you're you're right when you say i mean the 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 circumstances around which this moment happened are very particular and positive for for uh for the socialist party on the one hand we have a huge influx of tourism 
um, which has been basically the 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 the, the point the, the the basis for um, any type of uh, economic uh, investment in the country right now. This happens, of course, uh, because uh, the Middle East is uh, not a place that people want to go to uh, at the moment. So it's very clear. It's funny if you go to Germany and you watch um, TV and you can see where before there were uh, all these commercials to Egypt or Tunisia or uh, Turkey or now they're all commercials to Portugal. Hmm. Um, so the influx of tourism has been huge, which of course tourism brings the attention of foreign invest investors that build some companies here. You know, of course this brings economic dynamic, but it can't be the baseline of any uh, sustained uh, um, uh, job creation and uh, and uh, labor uh, structure for a country because it's too volatile. Mm. Um, at the same time, there was also for a while the drop on the price of oil, and this is a very important thing for a country that is um, has an economy that is based on imports uh, because it lowers the prices of the imports. Um, so all this, and, and at the same time, this little opening at the European level, the crisis is over. So, you know, there's the possibility of some more social measures because things are okay at the moment. So all of this combined was the situation that the Socialist Party inherited to govern. And of course, the situation will not last forever. So the only way we can counterposit in at the time when it shifts is if we now uh, have the instruments in order to uh, be able to control uh, our economy, have a, have a coherent long-term plan on how we, uh, how we um, structure our productive sector uh, in the long term. It's not okay. We open, you know, restaurants here and hotels there that are actually private and so on. Um, so we need those instruments of sovereignty, of economic sovereignty, um, that we don't have at all. We actually have less of them today than we did in 2008, namely the banking, the banking system. Um, and so, therefore, uh, I don't think this is sustainable. But for now they are alive and well <laughs> and healthy and growing at least in the polls uh the left is lost in a conundrum of uh, electoral tactics bureaucratization institutions and without knowing exactly what to do next so it's a it's a good moment for their reinforcement but do i think it will last forever and they will keep up being this social no 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 because once uh, if it, if it was the, the external conditions that allow them uh, to be this social, it will be, and then they can blame the ex external conditions again, but uh, or they can blame the external conditions if things change, but 
It will also be the external conditions of a country, a very peripheral country, highly dependent on the shifts at the core of the European Union, um, that will force them to change um, what they have been doing. Regarding trying to to sort of reacquire sovereignty and, and control over the, the banking system and so on, how much of that do you think is possible whilst remaining within the Eurozone? And, and do you believe that Portugal should remain within the Eurozone? Um, no, I, I think it's not possible. Um, it, it, it's actually not possible at all. Um, which brings us to a very difficult conversation, um, but I think still very much needed, uh, because I think um, sometimes um, the left discusses um, stay, remaining or staying or, or, and or exiting as if uh, exiting would be just one thing. You know, that there could be only be one exit, and that's not true. Uh, exiting the Eurozone because there's a popular support for it uh, is one thing. Being thrown out by Schäuble, like he maybe wanted to do with Greece, is another. Exiting by yourself, especially, especially for a very peripheral country and with a very destroyed productive sector, is one thing. Uh, exiting in coordination with other countries is a different thing. So there's many, there, there's a left-wing exit and there's a right-wing exit. There's a, an exit that is fueled by sentiments of xenophobia and anti-migration and nationalism. And there is an exit that is fueled by sentiments of sovereignty and popular decision and open borders <laughs> in the end. You know, it, we, we have created this idea that internationalism equals Europe, European Union, we, which is something in, in our uh, in our argument has gone really wrong when we substituted real internationalism with belonging to a neoliberal um, system. And so um, I think that it, it's I, I can't. Tell you like in detail. I think it's it would be a. I think no one can really, but um, it would be a very hard uh, process to leave uh, the eurozone and eventually the European Union. Um, because you know, if you imagine a small country like Portugal, for you know, it would be. I mean, except for Germany, it would be harder maybe for for all the countries. But uh, how how do we combine? The capacity of leaving the European Union at the same time, how do we develop um, a long-term um, public uh, strategy to uh, be able to compete in the world market by ourselves? It's hard for a small country, especially in a country that for 40 years with entering the European Union has been destroying all of its productive capacities and became an economy based on uh, non-tradable goods and credit because labor is too cheap. So of course these are big questions, but in the end what what I what I I think it's important important to say is that we are trapped 
in a situation where we can only recover so much. And it's a very small, uh, it's, it's very, very short, the span of recover of recovery that we can have within this system. If we actually defend the democratic controls of the means of production, even if it's not in a revolutionary uh, moment, but uh, as pos as much as it is today, state control of the strategic sectors of the economy. If we defend uh, that um, the banking sector should abide to public law and not be uh, something that exists beyond it and un without any type of control. If we defend that a country um, should be able to decide uh, how to respond economically to crisis and impacts. If we defend all of this, we need instruments of sovereignty. And these instruments of sovereignty are not possible within the European Union and the Eurozone. So I think when we, we, we discuss this politically, we have to shift the onus of the narrative. I don't think we should build campaigns for exiting. I think we have to build campaigns for the absolutely vital instruments we need for uh, democ for democracy to exist, for um, for uh, economic recovery to exist, for an equal society to exist, and this this instrument building campaigns, political campaigns uh, um, about this instrument with the aim of building social majorities that stand for these issues will sooner or later crash with or clash with the wall of the European Union and the Euro. So I think this is more a strategic or tactical debate, but um, how do we build the understanding that in order for us to actually overcome austerity, we have to break with these chains that is the that is the European Union, the fiscal compact, the Eurozone. Um, and I think we need to politicize those um, those 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 campaigns, those demands. And politicizing them is uh, understanding why we need to break. We need to break because we need these instruments. If we want these instruments, we can't have them within this context. Therefore, we fight for the instruments. And in the process of fighting, then then we will take the step of say, okay, then we will have to leave if we want to realize them. But yeah, your the simple answer to your question is um, yes. I think Portugal would have to break, and no, I don't think Portugal should be uh, should remain. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know if you've found this, but but one thing I find sort of interesting is is to read uh, liberal American economists on the eurozone. You know, people like Joseph Stiglitz and mm -hmm. Paul Krugman. They're not radical figures. Uh, but I think just just the fact that they are uh, not Europeans, they're they're sort of able to have a relatively clear-eyed understanding of the, the the architecture of the euro, and to just see that you know within its own terms, just what a sort of um, you know dangerous project it was, just given the you know the attempt to institute a, a single currency over you know such a sort of um, divergent area economically, uh -huh. um, and it was you know clearly quite predictable that this would sort of redound to the benefit of, of, of Germany and, and uh, not not many other places, really. Um, 
yes, of friends until a certain moment, but not really anymore in the same. Yeah, way. but yeah. even even now, I mean, it is yeah. kind of remarkable that all mm -hmm. these countries have acceded to this this project, which is, uh, as you say, even in the case of France, it, it is now pro proving uh, pretty pretty destructive at this point. There is, of course, the argument for um, trying to, rather than breaking with the EU, of trying to achieve some sort of reform of the eurozone internally. You know, there's the, the DM25 uh -huh. uh, group uh, associated with Yanis uh, Varoufakis, the former Greek finance minister. Uh, what's what's your opinion of, of I mean, from my perspective, I, you know, in theory, I'm I'm kind of all for it. You know, if it can be done, then fine. But 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 I'm I'm skeptical. But I, I wonder what your thoughts are. I think the the prospects of um, of uh, reforming the EU. I mean, like you say, in theory, it sounds like a beautiful idea, right? Um, why not? But uh, in reality, <laughs> I think that's pretty impossible. First of all, because how can we reform? something that was born to be a system of inequality. Um, it, the, the way in which the whole structure of the union from the beginning on, especially with, when uh, more countries uh, in the 80s started to, to join, um, it was always supposed, like the liberals uh, say, um, it was always supposed to be a core periphery, highly dependent, uh, for the benefit of the few type of project. And uh, a way in which you create supranational structures um, that actually de-democratize the only places where democracy still happens, which is at the level of the nation state. Because, you know, democracy is not <clears throat> this empty jargon of... Uh, you know, we vote. Democracy is a practice. This is it, it's a daily practice. If you want to participate in society, for you to participate in society, democracy is the idea that we all that that we need um, equality in all spheres of life. We need uh, jobs and a social state and the possibility of deciding what to do with it and all of this. And so, all the, the idea of creating a supranational structure that controls and decides upon uh, the economy of and and and, the, and and takes clear political decisions upon all of the member states without any sort of popular control over it um, and that is then used as a rhetoric tool to say uh, oh yes we have to do this because europe told us so I don't think this project has never had the structures to be reformed because to 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 actually build some sort of supranational uh, organization, uh, a left organization, a progressive organization uh, of different states. Um, you need you we would need to rebuild something completely new and to rebuild something completely new we normally need to destroy what is there before and so i i find this um 
also <clears throat> um, also in 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 Dian's um, analysis, I, I find another thing that uh, it's nice, but also totally unrealistic, which is the idea that political shifts can happen everywhere uh, at the same time in the same direction. So all of this is possible if we in countries as different as Hungary or Portugal at the same time have the same relation of forces towards the same goal. Uh, I mean, how, how does that even happen? It never did. So the question is, how do we, real internationalism is not the idea that uh, is not the practice, the idea and the practice that on the places where people can still decide things, they will have sort of to wait for everyone to be ready at the same time, as, as if this even ever happens in politics, uh, so that we can all shift at the same time. Real internationalism is to set examples, is to uh, is to lead processes of transformation that can inspire and help other processes of transformation. For example, um, and I think this is a very beautiful, it was a beautiful moment to live uh, in 2015 again, when Greece started to negotiate with, with, uh, with um, I wanted to call them viewers, but they're not viewers, they are uh, creditors. Uh, with the creditors, um, there were there was a big there was a movement across Europe that sparked in solidarity with Greece. There were demonstrations in so many countries. Some of them were huge and connected the solidarity with Greece with particular issues of their own country. In Portugal, this was the case. In Ireland, it was the case. In Spain, it was the case. So. Uh, the Greek social movement and the, the 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 first victory of Syriza in the beginning in the beginning did more for internationalism than and the idea that we can build a constitution where everyone has to sh change at the same time. So it sparked true solidarity. If if German workers, uh, you know, Germany uh, has wage compression for so many years their wages compared to their productivity are so low if german workers wage a fight for for uh, uh, for to rise their their wages in the system that we're in today it would mean that wages in other places would probably have to be rising as well if then there are the real connections so i think internationalism is built upon concrete processes of struggle that come from spaces of society where democracy still exists and where our strength can be measured and push things forward and not by some supranational structures or projects that are not engaged in the concrete struggles of each place because this spaces and these forms, which is the same as, you know, I compared it almost as the EU, this supranational, not relatable, uh, not really democratic because it doesn't come from the daily practices of organization. Um, 
where so it's not from these spaces that actual struggle, actual shifts, the shifts of the struggles that happen by inspiration, and because you open a political space that then can be multiplied, um, will happen. And so, when when we say this, when I say that uh, we need sovereignty and uh, instruments of sovereignty. Uh, I don't have this uh, patriotic uh, nationalist idea at all with it, which I, what I think is that if there was a country today in Europe that was capable of winning a struggle for economic and democratic sovereignty, um, this shifts and makes the house of cards tremble in ways that are unpredictable. And if this is done, in connection with real struggles and real actors in other places. Um, and if one shake here and one, one struggle here can lead to the multiplication, another one struggle there, then this is what creates, in my opinion, the necessary movement for an actual European spring. <laughs> and, uh, and I don't see any other way in which this can happen because it, to exit, to, to propose exiting is not to isolate because it is also not true that the crumbling of the, of the European Union is what is going to bring fascisms. I mean, look at the European Union, look at Hungary, look at Italy, look at Austria. The fascists are already here. They are a product of this system. And so this this um, this uh, ghost that uh, Yanis Varoufakis carries around that we need to maintain this project at all costs because you know I've heard all costs so many times but from other political things you know at uh, wing because if not if this crumbles then fascism will be spreading what why what how I mean first that's not how fascism grows that's it's an ahistorical analysis. But at the same time, because they are already here, so how do we battle the the, the right wing? We I believe we battle them by giving to um, understandable grievances the correct answers. Because I mean, of course, people feel disempowered. They are disempowered. Of course, people feel that uh, uh, they the, the or they feel that they. They have a feeling that um, their jobs are so precarious that they need to keep them at all costs. The right wing gives wrong, bad answers to that. Answers that in the end will not even solve the problem. The left wing has the task and the responsibility to give to those grievances that are real, that people feel and we can relate to them, uh, has the task and the responsibility to give the good answers to that. Uh, and I don't see any other way of how, and I don't think uh, a supranational whatever, waiting for everyone and building on the fear of uh, fascism as if a fucking neoliberal, sorry, a neoliberal... Um, sorry, this isn't public radio. Uh, yeah, yeah a, a neoliberal institution that has itself created the groundwork for fascism to grow. You know, to play on the fears of this destruction for other things to come. I mean, come on, it's not—it's not even a, a, a serious analysis of uh, 
but 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 I understand why why it sounds so nice. I understand, and it, it's hard. I mean, I do because I understand the idea because a part of Europeanism builds upon good sides of people, and you know, good feelings, good 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 ideas. You know, I want to travel. I want people to come here. I want people to be able to move freely. I want to move freely. Of course, it, it's built also on this idea that. You know, we exchange cultures, and this is great. And I and I understand why people are scared uh, to lose this because in the process of uh, European integration, we have again, as I said before, sort of um, substituted the idea of actual internationalism, which is this: the breaking of uh, boundaries and and uh, and borders and uh, mixing of cultures and experiences. We have substituted this by understanding that this is equal the European Union. It's not. It never was. Um, but so you need to break with a narrative that I grew up with. I'm 32. I grew up in the year that Portugal joined the EU. And I grew up with this narrative. So it's a very hard narrative to break. But I mean, if we don't do the critique right, and if we don't propose actual, I mean, doable, uh, correct and buildable uh, solutions, uh, we will get lost in um, in a discussion that will lead us, I think, absolutely nowhere. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. You can follow the pod on Facebook and Twitter. It's at Poll Theory Other. If you like the show, please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll be back with another show next week.